Welcome to this first episode of this in-depth Lord of the Rings character guide podcast, Not Another Fucking Elf, hosted by Lord of the Rings nerd Paul Ridd. Hello. And me, Catherine Bray, also a Lord of the Rings nerd. Now, what is this podcast and why? Well, we wanted to talk about the Lord of the Rings because that's our idea of a good time, and we thought a character-by-character, episode-by-episode approach would be an interesting way of slicing it all up. So each episode will look at a different character from Lord of the Rings, with clips from their different portrayals and adaptations, and we'll have a think about their place in pop culture and all the rest of it. And do you want to talk about why on earth we called it Not Another Fucking Elf? (laughs) Yeah, that is in no way a diss on elves. It's a reference to what Professor J.R.R. Tolkien's friend Hugo Dyson supposedly said when hearing a bit of J.R.R.'s latest writing read out at the informal drinking and writing society The Inklings. And it's a quote often misattributed to C.S. Lewis, probably because he's a bit more famous. And speaking of fame... (laughs) Ah, see what you did there? Today's episode stars Gollum, probably one of the most famous characters in all of Lord of the Rings, I would say. Yeah, he's top tier. You're you're not going to see David Wenham on the late night show being asked to read out Trump tweets in the voice of Faramir. Gollum is Lord of the Rings' A-list. Uh, Before we get into all that, we should say that any and every plot detail from The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion and the associated works is fair game here. We're going to proceed as if there's no such thing as spoilers. Yes, I assume anybody who's been lured in by the promise of a character-by-character podcast series about Lord of the Rings made by some people they absolutely do not know probably knows a bit about Lord of the Rings already. If not, we salute your decision to listen to a potentially baffling podcast and we hope you enjoy it. And if you love Lord of the Rings, but it's been a while, that's fine. We're going to do recaps of all the most important plot points about each character. Shall we dive in? Let's dive in. So a big basic question to kick things off. What is Gollum? What's the backstory? So Gollum starts life in the dim and distant past, nearly 600 years before the events of Lord of the Rings. He's a hobbit-like creature from a breed of hobbits keen on boats and fishing. The stores. Gollum's name at that point is Smeagol. He has a friend called Deagol, and those names, as ever in Tolkien, are very revealing. Deagol means secretive, and Smeagol means worming your way in or burrowing. Uh, so these two hobbits are fishing one day. Deagol finds a golden ring. Smeagol murders him and takes the ring and discovers that when he puts it on, he turns invisible classic origin story and not that Gollum knows it but this ring is the one ring the ring of power a great ring and therefore he doesn't age and die like a normal mortal but kind of withers over a long period into the Gollum creature that we know and love so the ring extends his life uh, he becomes obsessed by it and is physically corrupted into a kind of man spider frog guy Then in The Hobbit, which takes place about 60 years before the start of The Lord of the Rings, Gollum loses the ring, which is found by Bilbo Baggins of the Shire, a hobbit, and that sets the stage for Gollum's quest in The Lord of the Rings to recover the ring, his precious, for himself. Yes, so from the point of view of Gollum, The Lord of the Rings is an epic tragedy about trying really hard to get a magic ring that was stolen from you, managing to do that, and then finally falling into a crack of doom right at the moment that you triumph. Yeah, so just incredibly sad from his point of view, honestly. So that's Gollum from a plot point of view. Let's talk a bit more about what he's actually like as a character. Well, I mean, I guess the thing that really defines him is a kind of desperation, right? It's like a complete, utter desperation to retrieve a thing that was taken from him. So that gives his 
whole arc a kind of sense of tragedy yes they always say to writers um, on kind of writing courses and things like that what does this character want that's pretty clearly defined for Gollum a plus Tolkien in your writing <laughs> assignment yeah and uh, he's a sort of wretched creature as well right he's consistently described in terms of kind of him being kind of disgusting but also pitiable and that's something that really comes through as a theme yeah and like he's not beautiful and talking generally beauty is linked to moral good standing and, yeah. yeah um and he's very much uh sort of withered shrunken he has these lamp-like eyes that glimmer slightly more green or slightly mm. more bright and wholesome depending on whether the evil or good side of his personality is to the fore in that particular moment mm. but he's quite strong He's often talked about as kind of strong, strangling, tough, and yeah, he, has, he hasn't faded, which is a... He possesses the ring for a really long time, and one of the things that can happen in this universe, if you do that as a mortal, is that you fade and become a wraith, and that doesn't happen to Gollum at all. No, no, he's incredibly resilient, and half of the, the joy of the story is the idea of his um, kind of conniving and and kind of uh, deceiving and trying to find roots to this ultimate retrieval right so that's so he is a, str a strong character in a very sort of perverse way and we're pretty clear on what he looks like now but uh something that i always really enjoy is that when the first edition of the hobbit came out he wasn't described in as much detail and so there's these really lovely early illustrations the illustrators who didn't have too much to go on with Gollum came up with. There's a lovely one by Tove Jansen, the Moomins author illustrator, where he, I think he's five metres high. and <laughs> This huge giant. This guy looming up in a cave opposite Bilbo. Uh, do look that up if you haven't seen it. It's rather lovely. So maybe, I mean, obviously we have a frame of reference for what he would sound like from various different iterations, including, of course, the films. But do you want to talk a little bit about how Tolkien describes the voice of Gollum? Yes. Tolkien, as a professor of philology and language, is always very interested in language and how the different characters that he creates speak. And Gollum, he gives him all of this sibilance, these S mm. sounds that are emphasised. And he also talks about him all the, himself all the time in the third person. There's a lot of qualities that make him really leap off the page. He's not quite like any of the other characters in Lord of the Rings, which I think is one of his strengths and, mm. and why he's so interesting. The contrast also with the sort of noble qualities of the main characters in the story, this idea of a kind of embodied id who has one desire and will just be very uh, upfront about that desire at all times and sits completely at odds with the quest and, and the noble principles of the rest of the characters. Yeah, and I think something else that really drives home how impactful this character is, is that he's not in most of Lord of the Rings, mm. and it feels like he is. Lord of the Rings is, as most people know, it's in three parts, and then within those three parts, each part is divided into two books. Gollum doesn't really show up as a presence until we're halfway through the Two Towers in book four. Mm in the chapter The Taming of Smeagol. Like they, we get little glimpses of him beforehand, but it feels like he's one of the most important characters, I think, because he's so well-drawn and mm. so lively and impactful. Yeah. And one thing I always enjoy is the evolution of Gollum between the earliest edition of The Hobbit and the later edition of The Hobbit and the reasons for that which emerged as a result of Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm going to read here a little bit from 
a letter that Tolkien wrote kind of explaining this change that happens. So imagine that I have the voice of J.R.R. Tolkien, just uh, adjust that in your head. In the original version of Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, Gollum really does intend to give Bilbo the ring when The Hobbit wins the riddle game, and is deeply apologetic when he finds that it is missing. He now quotes from the original edition of The Hobbit. I don't know how many times Gollum begged Bilbo's pardon. He kept on saying, We are sorry, we didn't mean to cheat. We meant to give it our only present, if it won the competition. He even offered to catch Bilbo some nice juicy fish to eat as a consolation. Bilbo, who has the ring in his pocket, persuades Gollum to lead him out of the underground passages, which Gollum does, and the two of them part company in a civil manner. <laughs> Just unimaginable, really, isn't it? Very different to the more enduring image of him shouting, Baggins, thief, we hate it forever. Yes. So the reason for this was that The Hobbit was written originally as a kind of children's story. He didn't think that it was necessarily going to connect up with the mythos he'd been working on in the materials that eventually became the Silmarillion. When he wrote Lord of the Rings, his publishers were after a sequel to The Hobbit, which is why it starts out in the kind of like jovial shire yeah. register and later later evolves into the more high high romantic heroism mode. Mm. And when he was trying to make it retcon, I guess, the story so that they both fitted together, he realised it didn't make sense that Gollum was totally chill about giving up the ring, was in fact going to give it to Bilbo as a present. So he realised he needed to do something about this. And rather than just rewrite it and leave it be, and just say it's a, it's a textual inconsistency, Tolkien's position is that the first edition of The Hobbit is based on Bilbo's first edition of his memoirs, in which Bilbo lied about how he got the ring, and it then becomes evidence for the unwholesome power of the ring that sets to work on its new owner at once. Wow, yeah. Like, it's such a kind of perverse logic, but it does really add up in terms of how... Bilbo positions his own story. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, love it. Love uh, that that sort of deep thinking about what each narrative exists as within the world that he has created. It's mm. uh, really fun. One of the things that really appeals to me about Tolkien. Mm. So I think that's probably as far as we can go before getting into the various audio-visual portrayals of Gollum on the radio and on the screen, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think let's have a look at how different actors have interpreted the uh, on-the-page Gollum, if you like. First up, a bit of an unexpected one, right? Yes, I love this one. This is actually uh, Tolkien himself reading a bit from Riddles in the Dark from, from The Hobbit and kind of doing his own version of Gollum. I think we've also got a another Tolkien letter where he describes what this is. Maybe you'd like to read that out. Oh. Sure. I have recently made some tape recordings of parts of The Hobbit and The Lord notably the Gollum passages and some pieces of Elvish, and was much surprised to discover their effectiveness as recitations, and, if I may say so, my own effectiveness as a narrator. I do a very pretty Gollum and tree beard. Could not the BBC be interested? The tape reel is in the possession of George Sayer. <laughs> Love it. Love the idea of him just listening to himself yeah. back and being like, I really... A pretty Gollum. Okay. A very pretty Gollum. I really ought to be the one bringing this to life. But it is also absolutely mad that the BBC did not take him up on this. That what feels might have like been. a real loss. I'll let you guys have a listen to that now. Excuse the quality of the recording. It's obviously from the 1950s <laughs> and the best version of it that we could find available. Suddenly up came Gollum and whispered and hissed, Bless us and splash us, my precious. 
I guess it's a choice feast. At least the tasty marshal didn't make us call And when he said call he made a horrible swallowing noise in his throat. That is how he got his name, though he always called himself My Precious. The hobbit jumped nearly out of his skin when the hiss came in his ears, and he suddenly saw the pale eyes sticking out at him. Who are you? he said, thrusting his dagger in front of him. What is he, my precious? whispered Gollum, who always spoke to himself, from never having anyone else to speak to. This is really exciting to hear him sort of embody that character with such vigour and really throw himself into the role. Yeah, and I think you can you can really see the way that these stories, the, the Hobbit certainly originally grew out of bedtime stories that he was telling his children. Mm. You can, I think he would have been a wonderful bedtime story reader. You can hear that yeah. delight in characterisation. Something that would have been cool to talk about, BBC, is the 1955 12-part Lord of the Rings adaptation. But as was standard practice at the time, it was not preserved. So we're we're left to imagine what the 1955 BBC radio adaptation would have been like. But it, it starred a, a German actor, Gerich Schwelderup. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Who's a German actor we don't know loads about. He was in A Canterbury Tale, the Palm Pressburger, in a very small uncredited role as Chaucer. Okay. He was in uh, The Cruel Sea, and I think a small role as like a Norwegian sea captain or something like that in Our Man in Havana. But he did a lot of radio work and a lot of play for today okay. type telly stuff. Uh, but we, we really don't know anything about what his golem would have sounded like. We do know that Tolkien didn't like those adaptations. Right, so. right. But was he very dismissive of them? As ever with Tolkien, he couldn't really understand why any changes would be made from the original text. Fair enough, it's his text. Uh, I think he was particularly scornful of the work they did on on Bombadil and also I think the way that the BBC continuity announcer introduced certain of the episodes with errors stuff like Goldberry is is Bombadil's daughter and that the Barrow Whites were in uh, were agents of Mordor uh, just all of these kind of unforced errors that probably don't matter to a casual uh, listener, but obviously... Galling if you're JRR. <laughs> yeah, exactly, if he's been 30 years. <laughs> why, why can't these people get it right? <laughs> so the first surviving professional recording of somebody uh, attempting a golem, as far as I know, is actually from The Hobbit, not from The Lord of the Rings. It's from the 1977 animated uh, Rankin-Bass Hobbit, which is uh, looked down on in like plenty of sections of uh, the Tolkien fandom. This is stuff about it that's fun, I think, but nobody would claim it was definitive. Yeah. And he's voiced by brother Theodore, who's a really interesting guy. He was German. He was mates with Albert Einstein, I think, at one point. Okay. And he was German Jew, so he had to flee the Nazi regime and, and came to America, and he got a job as a janitor at Stanford. And the, the rumour is that he went around and beat like 30 of their professors at chess, almost a kind of goodwill hunting yeah, yeah. set up. But it was a rumour that he put about himself, so right. we don't know quite how true it was. But anyway, he ended up with this media career. Uh, he was on Letterman a bunch of times as okay. a sort of eccentric. He was on the Billy Crystal Comedy Hour. If you look up Brother Theodore on YouTube, there's a lot of, of clips of him. But also somehow he's the voice of Gollum as envisaged by the 1977 Hobbit uh, producers. So now let's have a listen to the Brother Theodore rendering of Gollum. Perhaps you know the way out? Yes, I don't know. But perhaps we sit here 
and shuts with it. A bitsy, my precious. It likes riddles. Do I like riddles? Well, <laughs> yes, after a fashion. It must have a competition with us. If precious asks and it doesn't answer, we eat it, my precious. Oh, I say. So that's what that is. Yeah, it's just sort of like a dirty old man vibe to him, really, isn't it? It's like a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shades uh, of what would come with Peter Woodthorpe in the BBC. How episode. did you get this number I'm ex directory kind yeah. of. <laughs> to that one this heavy breathing so yeah um, yeah I love that he fled 1930s Europe in order to <laughs> come to America and do that yes um, but no I'm being slightly snarky I think like for the first person to do Gollum professionally that we're able to hear a clip from today it's a good job yeah yeah far is. from the worst thing in that version of The Hobbit yeah damning with faint praise <laughs> <laughs> The next iteration of Gollum that's available for us to listen to now is a little bit more widely known, widely consumed, the Ralph Bakshi 1978 animated version of The Lord of the Rings. Mm. So Bakshi has a sort of background in making kind of adult animated films, um, extraordinarily successful films like Fritz the Cat in the sort of 60s and 70s, and then he's takes on this big challenge of making an animated film of Lord of the Rings, which was originally envisaged, if I'm correct in saying, as something that would be a multi-film project. At least two, yeah. At least two, which explains why the film itself is quite truncated and strange, particularly in the last sort of section where it has to wrap things up very quickly. Yeah, yeah. you just get voiceover coming in like, and Frodo took the ring of power to Mordor. (laughs) And then this happened and this happened, we can't show you it, but it was cool. Poor lads, absolutely (laughs) gutting to just do the amount of work you have to do on an animated project and then have it be remembered for just stopping. Yes, but in that uh, film version, uh, it's the voice of Peter Woodthorpe, who would also play Gollum later on in the BBC radio dramatisation. He's mostly famous for playing the coroner in Inspector Morse in a few episodes. Oh, in the is 80s. he? I didn't yeah, know that. great sort of lumbering figure, really, really charismatic actor. But um, yeah, it's just funny to contrast those two performances. <laughs> in one way, he's playing this sort of like maniac, and in the other, this very kind of sedate, eccentric coroner. But you can hear, you said he's classically trained, I think you can hear that breath modulation in the way that he performs it. I'm trying to remember, I think he was, I think he was involved in quite a key or famous stage version of something. I can't remember what. He also originated the role of Estragon in Waiting for Godot, which is obviously a pretty enormous thing to do. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I... Most actors, obviously, playing Gollum is the peak, yeah. but... <laughs> and let's hear a little bit of him now. It burns, it cuts, it freezes! Take it off us, it hurts us! Don't you do it, Mr Frodo! It hurts us! What promise can you give me that I can trust? Smeagol will be very good. Smeagol will swear never, never to let him have it. Smeagol will say that. The precious is before you, Smeagol. Speak your promise. We promises, yes. I promise. I will serve the master of the precious. Good master. Good Smeagol. Take the rope off, Sam. 
Follow Smeagol. Smeagol knows the secret way. He does. Across the marshes. Follow Smeagol. It's far. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I really like the Woodthorpe version. There's a little bit more of a childlike sound to it, mixed with an old man. Yes. It's less guttural monster. Yes, yeah, there's like a lovely mixture of, like maybe it's just because he varies his voice more. Mm. It comes across a lot in the BBC adaptation where he does the same thing, of course, but yeah, just that kind of retreating from a really deep guttural sound into this kind of like quite high, almost falsetto voice when he's really angered or upset. No, it's a beautiful rendition. Then in 1979, we have a golem from an actor called Gail Chug for the uh, Mind's Eye radio adaptation of Lord of the Rings. That's Gail Chug. That's probably going to end up being my favourite name of the whole series, Gail Chug. I think that takes some mm. beating. I don't think likely to be my favourite golem, however, because Mind's Eye is not really one of the most well-regarded Tolkien objects. It's mm -hmm. uh, quite low budget and um, some, some of the adaptation, they do a nice job with Mind's Eye, but a lot of the voice work is pretty poor. Well, yeah, it's an American production, so there's a lot of American voices and that kind of takes you out of it a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't think it's what Tolkien was imagining. No. Anyway, uh, Gail Chug, do we know much about Gail Chug? Not a huge deal. Uh, we know that he also voiced Gimli and Barleyman Butterbur in the Mind's Eye production, and we know that he was predominantly a stage actor. His only film credit appears to have been two direct-to-video uh, productions of Shakespeare, so Cymbeline in The Merry Wives of Windsor, where he played Cymbeline and Falstaff, respectively. And he seems to have appeared in a number of other Mind's Eye radio adaptations. Uh, they seem to have specialised in doing um, audio versions of classic texts, including Lord of the Rings. So we're going to hear a snatch of Gale Chug as Gollum in a scene where Gollum meets Frodo and Sam. Sort of gives a flavour of his voice work, but also gives you some familiar lines that doubtless you'll know. So here's Gale Chug as Gollum. Nice hobbits. We'll come with them. Find the safe path in the dark. Yes, we will. And where are they going in these cold, hard lands? We wonder, yes, we wonder. You know that, or you guess well enough, Smeagol. We're going to Mordor, of course. <gasps> and you know the way there, I believe. <gasps> we guess. Yes, we guessed. And we didn't want them to go, did we? No, precious. Not the nice hobbits. Ashes. Ashes and dust and thirst there. And pits, pits, pits and orcs. Thousands of orcs as nice hobbits mustn't go to those places. Chug, 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 chug. Yes. <laughs> so it's a quite low-energy golem, I'd say, in comparison to some of the voices that we've heard or are going to hear. Yeah, it's not my favourite golem by a, a long chalk. Golem is a character realised to a relatively high standard across the board, so it really does stick out that this is kind of not top-tier golem. Mm -hmm. 
it's funny. I think that uh, two of the, the, these two guys, Brother Theodore and Peter Woodthorpe, are both called upon to do their Gollum again. The next iteration of Gollum that we find on our screens in 1980 for the Rankin Bass Return of the King, which completed the arc of the Bakshi film, even though it wasn't made by Bakshi and is considerably lower rent and mm -hmm. less expensive. They got Brother Theodore back for that. And then in 1981, the BBC radio adaptation, incredibly well regarded and, and well done. They call back Peter Woodthorpe from the Bakshi. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think, really fun that you've got both of these two actors getting repeated Gollum gigs yes. throughout their career. Yes. Should, we, should we have a little, a little listen to Brother... Theodore's reprise of Gollum for Return of the King. Let's do it. For shits and giggles. <laughs> yes. Wicked master. God help us. Gollum. Wicked master cheats us. Gollum. He mustn't go that way. He mustn't hurt precious. Away, you scum. What do you want of us? Give it to Gollum. Yes, give it to us. You give it! Give it! Give it to us! Well. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Even in that short clip, it's evident the slight lack of respect for the original text in one of the hobbits saying, Oh, God! <laughs> <laughs> Is that Return of the King film the least regarded, least highly regarded, the lowest regarded <laughs> Tolkien object, like in terms of... I think, yeah, it's up there or down there, uh, in, certainly in terms of um, professional works. Uh, people don't like the way that it's a musical. <laughs> yeah, the weird interludes with the fantasy. Well, that's the one with the weird fantasy Samwise Sam Strong. <laughs> yeah, we can have a look at that if we uh, get on to uh, Samwise episode at some point. We yes. can have, have a listen to Sam singing in Mordor. Um, <laughs> it's a bit of fun. And then let's have a, have a look as well at the at Woodthorpe returning to the role of Gollum for the 1981 BBC radio production. This is such a beloved piece of Lord of the Rings universe, isn't it? The BBC mm. version. Yeah. So the dynamic between Ian Holm as Frodo, um, Bill Nye as Sam, and Woodthorpe again as Gollum is just, yeah, wonderful. Good. Like to imagine him talking to Nye and home and being like, guys, I got this. I've done this before. <laughs> I'll let you Johnny come lately. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's have a listen to that. He's a Baggins, my precious ears, a Baggins, a Baggins stole it. He found it and he said nothing. Nothing. We hate Bagginses, not this Baggins. Yes. Every Baggins, all peoples that keep the precious, we must have it. But he'll see, he'll know, he'll take it from us. What's he going on about? And who's he when he's at home? Does he mean the Dark Lord? Best keep your ears wide open, Sam. If we has it, then we can escape even from him. Just on another level, isn't it? I mean, I... Stunning. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Uh, I remember when Fellowship of the Ring came out in 2001, BBC Radio 4 rebroadcast the whole of their dramatisation over 
weeks every Saturday afternoon and there's something so cinematic about the voices that are used that is just fantastic in terms of just rendering things that are purely audio as visuals with these great voices and Woodthorpe is one of the key contributors to that just the, the sibilance that he brings to it and the kind of guttural noise of the voice and the sound design is just yeah so Easy. vivid absolutely every bit of his vocal cords yes it's, it's like hearing someone classically trained play an instrument that they've done their yeah. 10,000 hours on or yeah. whatever he can really the control there and the delight it's its almost like he's doing a solo and really enjoying doing a solo yeah. in that bit of monologue that we just listened to and I think he creates such a full picture of the character even though he's obviously doing so without the aid of any pictures or visuals yeah no, it's an incredible piece of work so that's the 50s, 70s and 80s versions of Gollum. There's then, in 1990, Rob Inglis does what was for ages the definitive audiobook (laughs) version of Lord of the Rings. And this is one guy doing all of the voices and it's more of a reading than a performance in the Woodthorpe sense. But maybe it'd be interesting to have have a listen to a little bit of that. For sure. Now they could hear his voice creaking and whistling. Ah, Cautious, my precious, more hastily speed. We mustn't risk our neck, must we, precious? And oh, precious, he lifted his head again, blinked at the moon, and quickly shut his eyes. We hate it, he hissed. So it is a different gig from playing a role specifically, one of many having to voice all of the different voices in The Lord of the Rings. It's not really fair to say, is his Gollum Mm -hmm. better than the other Gollums? It isn't, but it's a nice job in the context of a narrated audiobook. He sounds older and more pitiable. I don't know whether that's just the effect of the particular clip that we've chosen to listen to there. It's just quite a low energy sort of golem in terms of if comparison to other audiobooks that we're going to talk about, but also other renderings that we've talked about previously. It's more that sense of reading reading you a story rather yeah. than acting it, which is curious actually because I think it came, his that gig came about for him as a result of having put on one one man shows of as Tolkien as of, of the Lord of the Rings. He's done a lot of theatre work, Rob Inglis. I don't know much much more about him, but he's mm. very much a, a stage actor. I think a bit of a self-made man kind of right. vibe. Right. Okay, so now we're on to the big guns, right, with Andy Serkis and his rendering of Gollum in both the Lord of the Rings films for Peter Jackson, but also his own audio book that he recorded a few years back of the complete text. The big lad. So to many people, Andy Serkis is Gollum. He's the Gollum who has been seen by millions worldwide in the series of films by Peter Jackson that's tied for the most Oscars ever awarded, Mm -hmm. absolute cultural touchstone. So I think for a lot of people, this is Gollum. Sneaky little witches. Wicked, tricksy, false. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. And a thief. No. Murderer. He was getting lower now, 
and the hisses became sharper and clearer. Where is it? Where is it, my precious? My precious? It's ours. It is, and we want it. The thieves, the thieves, the filthy little thieves. Where are they with my precious? Curse them. Them. Absolutely iconic yeah. work. Uh, yeah, it's just hard to imagine Andy Serkis before Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, we don't really have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what uh, was he up to? Well, he's sort of a sort of minor character actor appearing in a few um, kind of gangland films in the nineties and early noughties. Fun. Yeah, things like Shiner with Michael Caine. <laughs> Shiner with Michael Caine. And what is Shiner with Michael Caine? I think, it, as I understand it, if I remember correctly, it's a adaptation of a Shakespeare play, maybe King Lear, but done in, in sort of mockney gangster style, like oh, amazing Guy Ritchie. Um, so yeah, there's that. He's King in that. Shiner. <laughs> He's in gangster what, what one. What do we think Circus would play in in this mockney Lear? <laughs> Probably some that we possibly of, uh, imagine. <laughs> Maybe the the Joker, the fool, just sort oh yeah, of, yeah, I could see that yeah, riding around, around. <laughs> in a storm. Uh, Tom's are cold. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, wait, he's the, he's the one who's pretending to be mad. Yes, no, King Lear's pretty poor Tom, isn't he? Doesn't he do, say Tom's are cold? I think it's when Edgar is pretending to be mad. Oh, it's Edgar. Okay, that could be for our King Lear podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Circus was a minor British character actor, um, catapulted to global fame and success as Gollum. Um, really taking on a completely unique role in cinema, let alone in this film, really, right? Yeah, the big champ of motion capture being taken seriously as a mode of performance, which it should be and, and wasn't, so props to Circus for that. I think it is interesting to try to cast your mind back because we take it so much for granted now that an actor can stick on a wetsuit and a bunch of sensors <laughs> and perform as an avatar or a magical creature and, and the computer will render that and it will be done to a standard that we accept as viewers. But it was a big gamble at the time for where to workshop, whether it was actually going to work having yeah. the circus there. But they just, they went for it and filmed the whole thing. I think it makes a massive difference for Elijah Wood's performance as Frodo and Sean Astin as Sam that when the three of them are on their journey together they are physically interacting with a guy who really is there in the space with them yeah yeah and somebody who's delivering obviously a 100% pure performance in terms of like fully embodying a role um, and throwing themselves into it physically and vocally I think he ripped Sean Astin's wig off at one point when they were tussling um, nice. One of the things that Aston has beef with in his... So much beef. <laughs> so much beef. Uh, but yeah, Circus, uh, obviously one of those guys who takes his work very, very seriously, as he should. And I think it's emblematic of how successful he was in the role and how connected with the Rings universe that he was, that it's Circus who's done this big recent 2020 audiobook reading The Lord of the Rings. And he's done a very good job to my mind what did you think of the audio but you recently yeah you listened to recently no i mean it's fantastic in terms of all the other voices that he does on top of Gollum. um but yeah no i mean just 
the it's just hard to think of the character at all without hearing his voice and having it you know rendered for the entire book as well as just yeah incredible achievement and to play devil's advocate for a moment because i think we take it for granted that circus kind of is the definitive golem is there a case for any of the other golems well i suppose it's more just if i think of what makes me if i think about what is sort of definitive for me in terms of Lord of the Rings. I think that BBC radio version from the 80s is mm. very, very close to my heart. And it's hard to imagine planting the more sort of methody, more down and dirty circus into that very classical version. So it's, there's just different kind of takes, aren't they, really? I've seen people online refer to the Donald Duck aspects of circus's performance. I don't fully agree with that. I know what they mean. There's a little bit of that daffy goofiness mm -hmm. in there that you don't find in Brother Theodore, certainly don't find in Tolkien's own mm -hmm. version, um, and don't find in Peter Woodthorpe to the same extent. But I think it works really, really well for the tone of Peter Jackson's movies, which are big, fun, maximalist versions of the Lord of the Rings universe. If Peter Jackson has a choice between the subtle version of something and the big, exciting cinematic version of something, obviously he goes for the cinematic version, so it really makes sense that the same is true of our golem in the PJ ring cycle. Yeah, yeah. So Circus in particular leads us, I think quite nicely, onto a conversation I'd like to have about Gollum's wider cultural resonance. Yeah, I mean, it's a uh, it's testament to how much of an impact um, those films and that performance had on the culture at large at the time in the early 2000s that Gollum could be taken out of the context of the films and plugged into right, right. the MTV Movie Awards and receiving that. <laughs> And that whole yeah. disaster. Yeah, um, I think we've got that in our clips bank. I think we should have a, lis a listen to that. Um, so what is that, first of all? Let's, let's give some context for that. Um, so this is the MTV Movie Awards presenting, apparently, Andy Serkis with the award for Best Computer Generated Character. But they have a little bit of fun with that in his pre-recorded acceptance video, uh, as we're about to hear. Let's roll that one. Hi everybody, my name's Andy Serkis and I'm delighted to receive this award on behalf of everybody who brought Gollum to life. Can't actually be with you this evening because we're down in New Zealand completing more shots on Gollum for Return of the King. I'm actually in the motion capture studio where we do a lot of Gollum. Uh, I would like to say a big thank you to all the MTV fans, to the Lord of the Rings fans and to everybody who worked on Gollum. It is a complete marriage of skills. You're a liar! I'm the thief! It's mine! I won it! It was me! We only won because of me! And me! MTV is my friend! My friend! You don't have any friends! Nobody likes you! Dobby likes me! Dobby! Dobby's a f***ing f***! That's enough, Gollum. Piss off, circus, you stupid fat with a f***ing turd! I'm, I'm not fat. We're not going to thank anyone, no, no. Not you, not MTV, and not those pigs of pussy pendants that watch a digital. And Peter Jackson, my precious. Who do you think you are, you f***ing hack? Shame on you! Shame on you! Go f*** yourself! I'm not listening. I'm not listening. 
Frankly, nothing can compensate for the long hours of role play and miserable experience we've had making this f***ing movie. And if you think a little tub of gold popcorn as my remotes make up for everything we've suffered, you're sadly f***ing mistaken. You're all bastards! Angel sucks! We hate you all! Good night. So it's hard to imagine what JRR would make of that. Um, oh my goodness, can you imagine? Him taking issues with the continuity announcers in 1950, getting the plots wrong. And yeah, minor plot details about who the Barrow Whites are, <laughs> are in league with. Well, there's going to be this successful trilogy that does not have any Barrow Whites in it, but what it does have is a version of Gollum who will go on to win an MTV Music Award in a speech laced with profanity and jokes that absolutely wouldn't fly now. I think there's an F-slur in there, there's a little bit of fat-phobia, it's... Yeah, I wonder if there's been, like, instances of animated characters before accepting awards. It might be a first, I don't even know. Which raises some questions about the interval between the votes being (laughs) tallied at the MTV. (laughs) And the amount of time that would have to go into rendering Gollum to make him accept that Yes, do we think it was a fair and competitive process? I'm not sure if the MTV awards are necessarily the most, well... Who can say? Who can Maybe say. there were multiple unplayed... <laughs> there was uh, a Dobby one. There was a Dobby one that will never see the light of day. Circus has made a whole career out of mocap characters, bringing monkeys and huge King Kong-type characters to life on screen. Um, but he keeps returning to Gollum and did so um, most recently to uh, Lambaft former President Trump, in a series of readings of his tweets. Yes, that's another one that we've got, uh, is Circus reading Trump tweets. This is, as I think I said in the introduction to the podcast, it's just not something you can really imagine happening with any of the other characters in Lord of the Rings. Not even your big famous like Gandalf or Frodo. This this is something that really only works, if it does work, Mm. with Gollum. The fake news media! has never been so wrong or so dirty. Purposely incorrect stories and phony sources to meet their agenda of hate. Sad. It's a weird one. (laughs) It's a weird one. Why? How is Trump Gollum? (laughs) Like, how does that work? I mean, I get it. There's a sort of maniacally obsessed figure who craves after gold but there the the similarities end don't they really i don't know it's just a a, a testament to how far removed you can take a cultural object or a a key sort of um symbol of something and put them in a different context and it continues to have meaning even though it really doesn't it is amazing to think of this this professor at oxford writing (laughs) the hobbit in the 1930s and then almost 100 years later that character being used to mock the president of the United States as was. Yes. Culture is wild. Yes. There are even more outlandish um, references to Gollum across pop culture as well. I'm thinking of things like Led Zeppelin referring to Mm. Gollum in um, Ramble On. I mean, there's a lot of Lord of the Rings references in all of Led Zeppelin music because they're obsessed with Tolkien, but specifically that line about um, Gollum, Gollum and the, and the, and the evil, evil one. 
Warg. Yeah, so I always get this wrong. I always think it's the Warg, but it's the one. Who is the evil one? I guess it's Sauron, but yeah. Or just some guy who took one of Jimmy Page's girlfriends. <laughs> just some... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but yeah, he was um, Tolkien was embraced by the the counterculture, and it feels like Gollum is one of the characters that was part of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is fun to think about Gollum in Led Zeppelin lyrics and and reading out Trump tweets and all, all the rest of it. We have come quite a long way from the original text. Yeah, it is uh, quite removed when you start talking about um, Gollum reading Trump trees. But if we sort of go back to his sort of deeper significance in the Tolkien text and in all of these audio-visual renderings of the story, he what does he mean? What is Gollum? What does he represent? What does he symbolise? I know Tolkien was always reluctant to talk about things like extra-textual readings of Lord of the Rings meaning something other than what it is, but what does he mean? What does he represent? Yeah, he hated allegory, but he loved history, yeah. um, which is, I think, an interesting way to think about fantasy literature. I quite like that take on it. Uh, for Tolkien, I think Gollum represents you know a fall. Tolkien was a Catholic, so there's that idea of mortal beings as capable of being corrupted and also capable of salvation. And mm-hmm. we see that Gollum comes quite close to that. In there's a piece that Tolkien described as his one of his own favourites from the book. Maybe I'll read that out from yeah. one of his letters. I came eventually, and by slow degrees, to write The Lord of the Rings to satisfy myself. Of course without success, at any rate not above 75%. But now, when the work is no longer hot, immediate or so personal, certain features of it, and especially certain places, still move me very powerfully. The heart remains in the description of Keren Amroth, but I am most stirred by the sound of the horses of the Rohirrim at Cockcrow, and most grieved by Gollum's failure, just to repent when interrupted by Sam. This seems to me really like the real world in which instruments of just retribution are seldom themselves just or holy, and the good are often stumbling blocks. Well, it's a lot to get your head around, isn't it, in terms of that level of complexity and level of um, ambivalence. Yes, that idea that his fall is necessary to the success of the ring quest i feel like that's what people haven't got their heads around when they say things like but frodo didn't cast the ring into the fire at the end he's not the hero as you've got to look at the text in its totality it's not about awarding points to who's the hero or who mm-hmm. isn't and yes this comes up in another letter where tolkien says into the ultimate judgment upon Gollum, I would not care to inquire. This would be to investigate goddess privite, as the medi- as the medievals said. Gollum was pitiable, but he ended in persistent wickedness, and the fact that this worked good was no credit to him. His marvellous courage and endurance, as great as Frodo's and Sam's, or greater, being devoted to evil was portentous but not honourable. I'm afraid, whatever our beliefs, we have to face the fact that there are persons who yield to temptation, reject their chances of nobility or salvation, and appear to be damnable. Their damnability is not measurable in terms of the macrocosm, where it may work good, but we who are all in the same boat must not usurp the judge. The domination of the ring was much too strong for the mean soul of Smeagol, but he would never have had to endure it if he had not become a mean sort of thief before it crossed his path. Whoa. (laughs) 
yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very Christian. Very, yeah. very. It's very sort of determined. Mm. And yeah, predestination and all those things come into it when you start thinking about things in that way. Yeah, because for talking, one of the most important things that one could do with one's time on the earth was to become what he called a sub-creator. Um, he genuinely had this sense of something quite sacred in the idea of creating worlds. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's why he's so uncynical and so um, you know, peppery about changes to it because you're changing something that's quite sacred to him rather mm. than he's not, he's not thinking in terms of, sure, you know, like, this is fine. I wrote it for the money anyway. Yeah, yeah. Do you think all of the texts that we've talked about, the films, the radio shows, the animated films, do you think all of them, quite apart from altering major plot elements and removing whole subtext, um, or subplots rather, do you think there's something essential that they lose in the act of transference? So you lose the existential quality, you lose the religious quality, you lose those things, just in that act of reducing something back to one core element. So Jackson playing up the action adventure and the horror and the sort of straightforward hero narrative that he plays on. Do you think they all in some way lose something I think it's important not to see it as a loss, but the idea that there wouldn't be a difference, I think, is mad. The idea that you can do a faithful adaptation that would therefore give you somehow an experience that's exactly the same as the original text. Mm. I think it's about identifying what is different about it. And of course, you have adaptations that are vastly inferior to the source and adaptations that are superior to the source. For me, it's important to try to regard them as separate experiences. For me, the experience of watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy is deeply powerful, but it's deeply powerful in different ways to reading the text. Yeah. I think the act of reading itself, it's almost an act of sub-creation because you're creating so much of the world for yourself as you read, so it does feel like a more active experience. Watching films is obviously very powerful as well because it acts on more of our senses, so mm -hmm. it's in some ways I don't know if more immersive is the right thing, actually, but you're you're scrutinising more than you're scrutinising with a book. Mm -hmm. You're taking on board the soundscape and it's also more controlled in the sense of you are always going at the pace of the film itself. Yeah. Actually, I guess that's not true anymore, is it? Netflix and yes. other streamers have introduced the ability to watch it faster. Yes, yes. I'm just sort of thinking specifically about Gollum, though, in terms of where he sits in this story and that, overwhelming importance obviously attributed to him by Tolkien himself mm. and the way in which what you've just read is sort of testament to the centering that he he obviously had um because yeah I, I, yeah it's it i would struggle to take that vision of Gollum and Gollum's whole arc away from anything other than the book right like i don't know if it's there what is the overarching feeling of Gollum in the film it's one of pity you get a sense of you know the 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 waste and the the sadness of it but you don't really i don't know do you get the sense of the huge existential conflict i i don't feel that film Gollum has as much of a sense of wrestling with himself over what he's going to do, I think you really feel that he's basically tricking Frodo and Sam throughout mm -hmm. um, that those moments where he seems close to repentance. I don't think register as much as a genuine battle for the soul of Gollum. 
all along it's it's the ring for Gollum, I think, in the film version. And that's fine in a film version. I think it would be quite confusing to do all of the necessary character development. It would pull focus in a film that's already an absolute beast. It's yeah. so long. Yeah. I just wonder if there was some sort of act of overcompensation, that use of a device that literally has him talk to different sides of himself through visual sort of devices that reflections or different angle changes and so forth. Is that almost like an act of overcompensation for something that the film will always lack? I don't know. Maybe. It's interesting that they didn't go with the device that we read in the book whereby his eyes flicker with a green light when he's thinking evil yeah. thoughts yeah. and uh, his eyes are paler when, yeah. when the good side is to the fore because if you were looking for ways to make it really, really clear what was going on with Gollum, that would be one of the obvious yeah, yeah. ones, right? Yeah, yeah. No. And Sam calling the positive and negative sides of Gollum slinker and stinker yeah. as well, they could have made more of that in the film and they don't. So I don't know, maybe it's because films of visual medium, it felt like you could already discern quite obviously what was going on with Gollum without mm. the need for those additional cues. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, to touch on literary sort of predecessors for Gollum, right? Like uh, reference points for, for Gollum visually, but also in terms of his central struggle. Yes, um, we've talked quite a bit about how he emerged from Lord of the Rings, the text, into pop culture and adaptations. But of course, no culture exists in a vacuum. Tolkien was writing with quite a deep knowledge of the body of English literature. It's not unreasonable to assume that things influenced Gollum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so obviously you think of this wretched creature that is sort of following you about. And that You immediately think of Caliban in and the Tempest and the dynamic with Prospero and also with Ariel. If you were trying to categorise a Shakespeare play as fantasy, <laughs> genre-wise, uh, the Tempest is probably up there. Yeah. yeah, so the idea of Caliban as a kind of uh, a wretched figure that embodies lots of desires that are repressed by civilised society and which are not acceptable at all. I mean, obviously, there are kind of colonial overtones in the play, which we can mm. talk about. We could have a whole podcast about the Tempest. We'll do that. We'll do our colonial overtones <laughs> in the Tempest podcast. Yes. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there's clear parallels. Also, the the, the fact that um, Caliban isn't wholly pitiable or wholly disgusting. Our ability to empathise and sympathise and even root for a wholly despicable character who has a ulterior motive in everything that they do and who is at odds with the heroic quest narrative of our main heroes. That's a curiously perverse but consistent factor in a lot of literary and, you know, visual and every form of art, really, isn't it? So that's maybe why it's enduring. Yeah, it's a great example of um, what is sometimes called peri-ethical qualities. So whether you are handsome or funny or charming has nothing to do with whether you're a good person, right? But if you write a fictional character who is those things, even if they're evil, we tend to gravitate towards another character. It's that, that idea of like, oh, characters should be likeable. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they have to be nice or mm. moral goods, but you, you want to follow them and go on that journey with them. And Gollum has a, quite a lot of peri-ethical qualities. Not that he's good looking, obviously, but there's a charm to Gollum. And he's funny. Humour mm. is a big peri-ethical quality. And he's probably the funniest character in the whole thing. 
And that's one of the reasons I think that we like Gollum, even though he's a villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also just something that, like we talked about, that sits so at odds with the rest of the world, uh, just on a sort of purely creature level, but on an ethical level as well. The idea that we would suddenly be presented quite late on with a character that is so at odds with everyone else is kind of refreshing, right? Yeah, and he turns up in basically the second half of The Lord of the Rings, by which time we're into a lot of high romantic fantasy mode of storytelling. But because he's quite been established in The Hobbit in this childlike register, there's a really productive juxtaposition there, I think, that makes him a lot of fun after you've, you've been reading about the sieges mm. and epic warfare, and then suddenly you've got a guy who's obsessed with fish. So that's Gollum. Hopefully fairly comprehensively analysed across an hour. Thanks for sticking with us. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. time for our final section of the podcast something we are calling the page off the page off it's a, a competitive game that you can also play at home with any edition of the lord of the rings and any online lord of the rings random quote generator we're using one on the site happycow.com it works like this we generate a random quote from lord of the rings and then we have to guess what page number it's from we're using a 1990 reprint of the 1966 HarperCollins edition, but you can obviously use any edition. Yeah, we'll, we'll then score points based on how far away from the actual page we landed. If you get it spot on, you score zero, and the aim is to score as few points as possible. We'll be keeping a running total across the series, and my aim is to destroy Paul, but we'll see what happens. Okay, so loading up the quote generator. She's loading it up. It's loading. It's loading. Okay, the online quote generator has generated a quote for us. Do you want to read it out? Sure thing. I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. Ooh, what a quote. Bit of Faramir. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? So if it's Faramir, we know it's not in the Fellowship of the Ring, for one thing. What's the earliest it could be if it's Faramir? It could be from Herbs and Stewed Rabbit, that's mm -hmm. when he shows up. And then he sticks around for a couple of chapters for the, the Forbidden Pool and Window of the West stuff. Mm -hmm. Sort of second half, Two Towers. So if it's the second half of Two Towers, we're probably in the five or six hundreds kind of page. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just gonna go bang on 600. Oh, spicy. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good, actually, because the first half of Two Towers, you're not with Frodo and Sam at all. All of that stuff is departure of Boromir, Helm's Deep, all that. And then the very end of Two Towers is all of the Shelob stuff. Mm -hmm. Ooh. I'm going to go 590. Okay. <laughs> okay, so... Let's look at where Paul's guess has landed him. Page 600 of this edition. Okay, so neither of us are that near. 600 is Sam tackling Gollum for the first time. And 590 is obviously slightly earlier. So mm -hmm. we are landing in Sam and Frodo before they even realise that Gollum is 
stalking them. So Oof. we've both failed there. Let's find out where it actually is. Yeah. Okay, so the actual quote is on page 656. And as we identified, it is Faramir talking about how he is uh, essentially a pacifist at heart. So we were quite Faramir off, weren't we? Ooh! Ooh, Mira Faramir. <laughs> Wherever you are, Amir. So I'm 66 pages off, so I score 66. Paul is 56 pages off, so he scores 56. So going into the next round, Paul will be in the lead. And that's the page off. Thank you for listening to Not Another Fucking Elf, a Lord of the Rings character guide podcast by me, Catherine Bray. And me, Paul Ridd. We are a self-produced podcast, so please follow us at Not Another Elf on all good social media platforms. And it would be great if you could give us not one, not three, not seven, but five stars for more good podcasts on your podcast app. Thanks to Tommaso Alietti for handling our digital bits and bobs, Charlie Shackleton for our cover art, and anyone else who helped us out along the way much appreciated all clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and we strongly urge you to go out and buy the 1978 ralph bakshi lord of the rings the 1979 mind's eye radio adaptation the 1980 rankin bass return of the king the 1981 bbc radio lord of the rings 2001 new line peter jackson lord of the rings and the 1990 robbing list and 2020 andy circus lord of the rings audiobooks both from HarperCollins. And buy the book. There are so many nice editions of the book out there. We also recommend the Humphrey Carpenter biography as a starting point if you're curious about the life of the man himself, and the collected letters also collated by Humphrey Carpenter with Christopher Tolkien. Nice. Tolkien. 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 Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss next week when we're looking at a guy with a striking accessory. That's your clue for next week, an impactful accessory. This has been Paul Ridd. And I'm Catherine Bray. And that's it for now. That's the end of the podcast. The ships have come to carry you home.